Welcome back to our study of the book of Deuteronomy. We are looking at the book of Deuteronomy through the theme of justice, and in this lesson we'll finish our examination of this thread of the idea of justice that runs through the book. What I'd like to do is talk about a particular aspect of justice in Deuteronomy and then connect it to the New Testament so that you can see the, the thread, you can see the perpetuation of this principle of justice in the Old Testament carried over to the New. Well, as we jump right in, as you may recall, uh, by way of recap, uh, we have the Israelites here on the east side of the Jordan River that are marked on the map for you. The year is 1406 B.C. Moses has led them through 40 years in the desert after having led them out of Egypt by the power of God's hand. And 40 years before this, they had received the law of Moses, the Torah, the laws on Mount Sinai. Now, one generation later, before they go into the promised land, as God had committed to them, he reiterates the law. And the book Deuteronomy means a second telling of the law. And so Moses gives them three long sermons, if you will, to reiterate the law. And then Moses dies on that side of the Jordan. And then the book of Joshua, which comes next, is the story of Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land. So that's when we are, that's where we are. What I'd like to talk about in this is the idea of systems of justice. We looked at, first of all, the fundamental confession, which is, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. This idea of the, the commitment, the covenantal relationship between the people and Yahweh, the particular God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then we looked at uh, the idea of the different forms of justice, and the idea that the justice in Deuteronomy, the justice in the Bible, is not a secular form of justice, but it mirrors God's, uh, the image of God himself. It mirrors God's personality. Justice is an expression, if you will, of God's personality. Then we looked at some applications in the book of Deuteronomy. We looked at slavery and oppression. We looked at poverty. And now, in this final lesson, I'd like to look at systems of justice. We hear a lot about that in our culture, uh, systemic injustice. And all that simply means is that the very systems that are designed to deliver justice are flawed. Thereby, they do not accurately uh, administer justice in any particular case at all. Perhaps some, perhaps not others, but it's systemically flawed. Well, you may recall I've used this chart a couple of times to give you a contrast, if you will, and hopefully this resonates with you because I think this is a great analysis of modern secular thinking about justice. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that, that these ideas are all universally incorrect. I will tell you that there is no one of these ideas about justice that encompasses the biblical idea of justice. In fact, the biblical idea of justice will indeed contain some elements of these. But as the secular views of justice, you'll find that they fall very short and go very much off track of a biblical idea of justice. The other thing you 
you can see immediately from looking at this chart, you realize, oh, yes, I know that there, all these are ways that people look at justice. And this is how they think about what is just, what is unjust, what is right, what is wrong, what is moral sometimes, and what is not moral. And when you look at that, you realize, no wonder people are talking past each other. We don't even agree on the idea of what is right, what is a just action. You get the idea of freedom, which is maximizing personal freedoms, and anything that impinges on that is unjust. You get the idea of fairness, and that's the idea that we should treat everybody the same. The idea of happiness. In other words, we should make as many people thrive and as happy as we can. We just have to accept that it is not possible to make everybody happy and give everybody what they want and treat everyone fairly. So that says, look, let's go from the individual because there's no system of justice according to a utilitarian basis that's going to make everybody feel like it's fair or free or happy. So what we're going to do is we're going to step back and look at the society or look at the group of people and say, whatever does the most, uh, makes most of these people happy is what we're going to call just. And then finally, one that's very popular in, it's actually not that widespread, but it's getting, it's a very evangelistic idea of justice, and that is justice is about the balancing of power or the redressing of power imbalances from the past. And so justice revolves around power, not around freedom, not around happiness, not around fairness. In fact, you will see this view of justice be very happy doing some things that are unfair because they are just. You'll see people with fairness say, wait a minute, I won't do some of these things because they're not fair. They very much disagree on what justice actually means. And so those are kind of the secular views of justice. Well, when we look at systems of justice, systems of justice are set up to achieve a particular outcome. Needless to say, if you have four or more, these are just four very good categories that I think will resonate with most of us. If you have four different ideas about what justice is, you can be assured that there will be huge disagreements when it comes to judicial systems, court systems, uh, political structures that are there to ensure justice. Who's justice? What do we mean by justice? And so you see that in this society. Well, in the Bible, God imprints his nature upon humanity and sets his nature as the standard for justice. So I want to take you back before Deuteronomy, all the way back to Noah in Genesis 9. So I think Deuteronomy is happening in about 1400 as the Israelites come out of Egypt. Well, back in 2000 BC, you have Abraham, and back well before that, you have Noah and the flood. So we're talking way before our story. And here's what I want you to see, is after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah. And this covenant is intended to be for all of humanity. The law of Moses is intended to be for the Israelites. It's a specific covenant for a specific purpose. The New Testament says its purpose was to bring all of humanity to the point where Christ can come. But in this time, it's a covenant with all of humanity. And so God blessed Noah and his sons. He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This is a repetition of what he said to Adam and Eve that humanity so very failed to do. 
The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth and bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the ground and fish in the sea. In other words, you have dominion. Uh, he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. And from his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. Talking about murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply it. So this is a restart, if you will, from the Garden of Eden in some respects. And so you see that repetition. But what I want you to see is what did the Jewish people understand this covenant to be about? And in fact, they understood this covenant with Noah, the Noahide covenant or the Noachic covenant, to basically require all of humanity to follow these seven rules. Now, the Jews had 613 commandments, but they understood all of these to apply to all of humanity, to you and me today. They understood these things to be God's command to us and uh, these things to be very natural in some sense to us. The first is to establish courts of justice, to do justice, refrain from blasphemy, idolatry, sexual immorality, murder, robbery, and do not eat meat with blood in it. Now, we could talk a lot about this particular covenant, and you're probably thinking, some of those things make sense to me, some of those things don't make sense to me. But the thing I want to point out to you is simply this. From the very beginning, you get this idea of establishing courts of justice. So let me highlight that. And that's what I want to look into. I want you to see that from the very beginning, God is very interested in this idea of people dealing justly with one another. When we get to Deuteronomy and the 613 commands in the law of Moses, we're going to see some flesh put on those bones, if you will. We're going to see some basically details being given. And that's what I want to look at is what are some of the things in the book of Deuteronomy that play out this idea of establishing courts of justice. Now keep in mind, here's our scenario. God is talking about what is going to be the rules that govern his people with whom he is in a covenant relationship when they go into this land. And so that's not exactly our situation, but I think you'll see the principles are going to carry forward. So just a reminder of God's nature. In Deuteronomy 10, this is one of the most revealing passages in Deuteronomy. The Lord set his affection on you and loved your forefathers. He chose you. Remember we talked about that God's relationship with us is because he loves us, he chose us. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be rebellious. When you see stiff-necked in the Bible, it means rebellious. In other words, I'm not going to do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. And do not be rebellious any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. So you already get this idea of dealing justly, and you also get the idea, the implication, the idea of bribery is very much common amongst people. And he says, and you're going to reflect my nature. So no partiality, no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, and loves the alien. We talked about those three things aren't like, oh, okay, so as long as widows, orphans, and immigrants 
Uh, as long as I'm nice to them, I can treat anybody, everybody else the way I want. Well, of course not. You understand that what he's saying there is he's taking, in that culture, the people who were least powerful, people that were most on the margins of society, and he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And he's saying, look, God defends the cause of the least powerful. How much more does he not require it of you as well? So God usually takes the extreme, if you will, and says, I even care about that. You'll see this all through the Bible, this way of thinking and talking about things. You are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. In other words, it's kind of the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said, look, one of the reasons you were in Egypt was to teach you what it's like to see the other side of justice and now understand how love, how chosenness, and how justice work. And so you see that the, basically the character of God is what's being, being communicated here. It's going to be played out in the law of Moses in a bunch of commands. But what's really happening is God to say, I want you to be the way I am. I want you to be holy because I'm holy. I want you to be righteous and live by your trust that what I'm telling you is just. So all those things in the Bible are really referring back, the basis for justice in the Bible is the character of God. So, key, key idea. Let's jump into this idea. One of the things that undergirds all the systems of justice in the Bible is this. Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. And what that basically means is you and I will be judged not based on what someone else has done. We stand before God in some sense. I do think God does expect things from us as a community. But at the end of the day, when the books are open and the dead are raised and we stand before God, Revelation chapter 20 says, and the books were open and each one is judged according to what he has done. There is an individual sense of guilt and innocence. I'll tell you how uh, Daniel Block puts it this way in his commentary on this. Courts should not punish, this is speaking now about the uh, Israelite understanding, the biblical teaching in Deuteronomy. Courts should not punish the children of criminals more severely than they do those whose family members have no history of crime. Now, you and I would probably, whatever system, whatever kind of justice you have, you'd probably say, yeah, that's probably true. But keep going. This is where this gets controversial in our society right now. At the personal level, it's tempting to hold grudges against those who, through no decision of their own, happen to be connected by birth or social organization with those who have committed crimes but who are long gone. In other words, emotionally, that is an easy thing to do. I mean, if you stop and think about it, one of the reasons that it has been so difficult for, let's say, the uh, Arabs, the Palestinian Arabs and the Israelis to make peace. One of the reasons that you're seeing progress now, but it's taken a long time between the Egyptians and the Jordanians, who now both uh, are at peace with Israel. When you looked at the Bosnian Serbs and Croats and the wars in, the, in Bosnia, and now today, there's still a little unrest. Why? One of the reasons is not because something's being done today and the Serbs and the Croats aren't necessarily doing anything wrong to each other, but it is tempting to hold a grudge against those people 
because of what their ancestors did to your ancestors. Now, some forms of justice would say there is some culpability on uh, the part of the Hutus and the Tutsis. This is a great example in Rwanda. It's very recent, people understand that, but you have two ethnic groups in Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And Rwanda is doing a great job now in this next generation of coming together and seeing themselves as Rwandans and building that country. We've been fortunate here in our city to have a number of students, Christian students from Rwanda coming here, learning skills, going back, helping to rebuild that country. And the interesting thing is that in our youth groups, in our groups of these people, I don't know who's a Hutu and a Tutsi. They do, but they don't treat each other any differently because of it. But the interesting thing is, is one of the barriers to that reconciliation is you could look at that person and say, you've never done anything to me, but your ancestors did something to my ancestors. And so there's certain secular views of justice that would agree with the Bible on this. There's certain secular views that would not agree with the Bible. But this is an undergirding principle of the justness of God. And so Block continues and said, while children are implicated in the effects of their parents' actions, in the administration of justice, they may not be held responsible, let alone punished for them. I just want you to see this because as you, and it is a little bit counter to some of the cultural influences today, but as you look at the Bible, this principle is gonna run through uh, a lot in the Bible. In the New Testament, you're not going to be challenged to, when it comes to justice, it's going to be justice based on what I have done. When you go to Ezekiel, for example, God's going to say to the people, he said, Ezekiel, you're not responsible for their sin, but I am telling you, go warn them. In the New Testament, you're going to see people voluntarily submitting themselves to other people. You're not going to see it as a matter of justice. Well, you know what? You used to be a sinner, therefore you need to do this. It's that's not the, the principle of justice. So this is an important principle that's going to run all through the Bible. Well, let's go on into some uh, specifics. He says this, Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. So the 12 tribes are going to have 12 areas, but they're going to be a nation. They're going to be the Israelites, and they're all going to be bound by a covenant with Yahweh, and by following these laws, these rules. And in our interest is the justice. You notice that they have uh, priests who are often uh, interpreters of what is right in a situation because they know the law of God. And then you'll see judges being appointed, particularly over things like economics and so forth that have very specific knowledge requirements. You don't really see juries you really don't see this idea that we have in America, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad idea, I'm just saying you don't see that here. You say, look, we're going to assume that you're a godly individual, you have knowledge of this case, and you're gonna be a judge. So you don't necessarily see juries, but you do see priests and judges mentioned a lot. Say, do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is a, an admonition to the people, but it's also an admonition to the judges. You know, the New Testament, it talks about, in James chapter 3, not many of you should be teachers, for we will be judged by a stricter standard. Even in our society, 
we judge those with whom we give power to have authority or judgment, we judge them to a stricter standard. For example, if you are a municipal court judge and you've been given the power to adjudicate what is right, what is just, what is lawful, whatever word you want to put in there, in that case, we tend to hold you to a little bit higher standard because you've been given this authority. And that goes all the way up in our society to the president, to the attorney general, to the Supreme Court, to members of Congress, etc. When you've been given power to judge, power to govern, if you will, and the, the Bible uh, is basically very comfortable with that, and that is that there is a higher standard applied to those who have been given this kind of authority. And so this standard is do not pervert justice, don't show partiality, no bribes, follow justice and justice alone. This is a really interesting, you have to deal now with some really specific things. We're gonna talk about uh, death, we're gonna talk about murder, we're gonna talk about manslaughter. And Deuteronomy has one of the most unique ways of dealing with this problem. Let me show you what I mean. This is Moses speaking for God to the Israelites. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he's giving you and you've driven them out, when you've settled, then set aside three cities centrally located in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Build roads to those lands, divide into three parts the land the Lord is giving you so that anyone who kills a man may flee to one of those three cities. They're called cities of refuge. This is the rule concerning the man who kills another and flees to one of these cities to save his life. One who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without malice, a forethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to chop down the tree, the head of the axe flies off, hits his neighbor, and kills him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him, and kill him, even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities." So this is the idea of what happens, and this is one of the more serious offenses. And Deuteronomy deals with a lot of offenses, but it really tends to take the more serious cases and allow you then to reason from there. But the problem with, with people dying is sometimes it's an accident. And so the people involved are going to say, yes, but look what happened. My brother, my son, my father, my daughter, my wife, whomever got killed is gone. I've been harmed. Well, on the other side, the person is going to say, I feel horrible. This is a tragic accident. It wasn't intentional. And the question comes about, how does one settle this? Well, I'll tell you how they settled it in the world before this. It was just a blood feud. You get the people uh, of the ones who were killed and say, I'm going to kill at least one of yours. And then they say, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to kill somebody in your family. And you had these feuds. Uh, all the way up until I, I was born in Kentucky. And, and, you know, think of the Hatfields and the McCoys and the idea of blood feuds in this honor kind of society. And this is true all through a lot of cultures in the world. And certainly at this time, one of the things this does is it basically says, for the good of my people and to do what is just in a situation that's almost impossible because there's a loss here, 
but is it really fair then to kill this person who accidentally did this? You have a very difficult situation. Well, here's how they settle it. The person who accidentally killed someone now has to go live in one of those three cities. They uproot their life. They also have loss. The person who lost a loved one through accident has that loss, but they don't start a blood feud that just escalates and a lot of people get killed. So this idea of cities of refuge, the more you think about it, really the wiser it is. And this is God's way of saying, this is how you will harmoniously deal with one another in some of these really hard situations. Time doesn't permit, but if you think about this, this is a template for how God would have us deal with lesser things as well. But what about the situation where you have murder, where you actually have someone who intends to harm his neighbor? Well, Deuteronomy 19 goes on to talk about that. But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults him and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities, the elders of his town will send for him, bring him back to the city, and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. So I like these two things back to back because on the one hand, you recognize the complexity of a situation that had no malice involved and yet there is loss. In this case, you see the idea of, I actually intend to kill you. It may be premeditated, it may not be, it may be because I've known you for a long time, or it may be that uh, for whatever reason I just take out a gun and shoot you. But it's murder. And notice how the difference in dealing with, one is compassionate to everyone involved and the other is merciless. It is, this is a cancer in your community. You cannot allow the innocent shedding of blood. And so uh, the scripture takes very different approaches based on the situation. And this is the essence of God's character being played out in these situations. Let's go on. Property. Uh, and again, each of these is a template for other things. For example, the way you deal with manslaughter is a great template, a great principle, if you will, for handling things that are accidents that don't rise to the level of someone dying. Nevertheless, it's a good template for what happens when both sides have lost something. How do we deal with that? It's a good template for that. This is a template for not only the respect for property, but for all kinds of business dealings. Listen to this. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land your Lord, your God, is giving you to possess. What's it saying? Basically this, is that in those days, they didn't really have surveyors. You couldn't go down to the courthouse and say, no, your fence is on my property. No, it's not. Uh, my fence is on my property. Well, today we go, we get the, you know, the surveyor, and we go, oh, gosh, you're right. My fence is three inches on your property. Yeah. It wasn't so easy to settle, was it? In fact, what they would have is they would mark out their boundaries because having reasonable boundaries is essential to getting along, and they would set out these boundary markers of stone that would basically lay out the limits of one person's land versus another. Well, since it's just a stone, this is, by the way, a boundary marker. It's a modern boundary marker, uh, the picture that you see there. But basically, you could move those 
you could simply take it and move it and gain some land that way. Well, obviously that's cheating, it's deceitful, and so God says, don't do that. Uh, that's unjust. It's unjust to lie or use deceit to take advantage of your neighbor and to get something that you want. In other words, there has to be respect for property and respect for neighbor. Now, Deuteronomy doesn't go into everything that might happen on Wall Street. It doesn't go into everything that might happen in business. It doesn't go into intellectual property uh, law in the United States. And yet this principle is surprisingly versatile when you think about it. When it comes to the idea that harmonious relationships, justice involves basically respect for the rules of the game. Now that's not so popular anymore. I want to give you a couple examples. Number one, we value in business shrewdness sometimes before honesty. In other words, some of the people that you most idolize, that are idolized in the press, whose biographies you've read lately, who are just great business men and women, when you look at how they achieve their success, sometimes they move some boundary markers. And yet we say, wow, that's, that's success. God would not say that. In other words, that's not God's sense of justice. In other words, the ends don't justify the means for God. Give you another example. I'm going to make a lot of you sports fans mad about this, but this shows you how our culture, our secular culture, thinks very differently about justice. Now, this is a small thing, but I want you to think about it because you'll see this idea perpetuate. God says, this is the boundary, respect the boundary. When is the last time you heard the word, boy, that was a smart foul that that person just committed in that basketball game? It was a smart foul. What is a smart foul? A smart foul is, well, you broke the rules, but it was a really good because it was advantageous for you. In other words, the punishment was worth it because of what would have happened to your side and you would have been scored on if you hadn't fouled that person. Now, that may seem trivial to you, but stop and think about it for a minute. What's that saying? Well, sometimes it's okay to move the boundary stone because you have so much to gain and relatively not so much to lose that it's really a smart thing to do. And I simply use that example to highlight for you that secular ideas of justice are barely coherent, first of all, but secondly, really not the same as a biblical idea of justice. So you get this idea about property, about business arrangements. You're going to see a lot in Deuteronomy about uneven weights, in other words, cheating people. This idea of let's follow the rules for the good of the community and also because it is just to do so. This one is really interesting to me because this goes right back now to the courtroom setting. This goes back to the pursuit of justice. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and judges who were in office at the time. Now let me translate this today. So let's say for some reason I hire a lawyer and I sue you and I say send them to jail because you did this to me or make you pay a big fine, or report something and say, you committed a crime, and I am an eyewitness, and you did it. Let's go to court together. That's what's happening here. The judges must make a thorough investigation. So you get the idea of, let's find out what actually happened. And if the witness proves to be a liar, 
giving false testimony. In other words, if I accused you of this and I'm lying, listen to this, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge this evil from among you. Now stop and think about that. So I report you for a crime and I say, you should prosecute this guy and I'll testify that yes, you did this. And then the facts turn out that no, you did not. Guess what? I go to jail for the same sentence you would have gotten. Now, this isn't so simple as just, oh, well, that's fair. It's a little bit different. What God is saying is, is that when you get intentional, willful evil, you saw this with murder, now you're seeing it here with the, the lying witness who's trying to ruin someone else's life, he says you must purge that behavior. And so God's sense of justice is very compassionate and even-handed in some situations, but when it comes to intentional evil, it's very, very harsh to say this is a cancer that has to be taken out of your society. There are some positive uh, commands as well. For example, if you see your brother's ox or sheep, now this is basically the idea of justice isn't just what not to do, just actions are also things you should do. If you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, don't ignore it. Be sure to take it back to him. If it inconveniences you, you see him, you know, the cows got out of the field, then by all means do what you can to help put them back. If the brother does not live near you, or if you don't know who he is, take it home and keep it until he comes looking for it. Then give it back to him. Do the same if you find your brother's donkey or his cloak or anything he loses. Don't ignore it. If you see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen on the road, don't ignore it. Help him get to his feet. So the idea of justice isn't just things I can't do to you. The idea of biblical justice is things that, because of God's nature, I should do to you. Now, this is where you're going to see the biblical idea, particularly in the New Testament. I want you to think Sermon on the Mount clash so vividly with secular ideas of justice. I mean, secular idea of justice would say, look, I'm not going to steal your, your cow, but your cow's out, that's on you. And God says, no, if you can help, you should help. It takes justice, in this case, much further in a positive direction. Again, New Testament, Sermon on the Mount, you'll see this taken to its logical conclusion, to the true nature of God. So justice and systems of justice are set up to implement what is right and wrong as God decrees it, not as I think or you think or someone else thinks about it, but there is this sense of justice. It's a harsh justice for those who are evil to protect the whole community. It's a compassionate justice for those who are marginalized. In other words, we have an obligation to go beyond and to help, to give. We saw the tithe for the poor. We saw the idea of leaving grain in your fields, uh, unrestrained greed is, is definitely not a biblical idea. It's considered to be unjust in the biblical model. Here you see the idea of caring for your brother and your brother's possessions. When I say brother, I simply mean your neighbor, if you will, your neighbor's possessions. Be helpful. So justice is not just a negative thing, what I can't do to you or what I shouldn't do. Justice is also positive, what I should do to you. Then finally, in Deuteronomy 27, this is near the end of the book, you get this list, a kind of a summary, and one of the things that Moses says is this, cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and all the people shall say amen. They will publicly assent that yes, 
This is just, this is what we will do. And again, the fatherless, the immigrant, the widow are in that culture are basically people who were powerless. Now, that's not always necessarily true in our culture, but the principle is the same. Basically, your justice extends all the way to the, quote, little people or disempowered people or the people that don't matter. I put all those in quotes because that's not the way God looks at it. And he says, so love your friend, hate your enemy, which, by the way, was the Roman and Greek idea of justice. Um, and by the way, a lot of people today think that. You see, they treat their friends really well and they treat other people not so well. What is that? That's just saying you have a, whether you know it or not, you have an idea of what's just, what's right, what's wrong. And it is love your friends, hate your enemies. That was a Greek way of thinking about it. But God says, no, that's not the case at all. It's not just the people who are powerful. It's not just the people who can do you some good. It's not just the people you like. Justice is for all of these people. And so you, you constantly see God pushing his people in the Old Testament. And obviously, we as Christians out past the limits of our comfort zone. The question I'd leave you here, and it's uh, something for you to think about, is who in our society are the marginalized and the out of power? And I'm going to challenge you on your thinking, because I know your gut reaction is, oh, you start thinking of categories of people, uh, poor people in general, uh, people who come here uh, illegally across the border, okay, they're marginalized, they're disempowered, our, our system of government doesn't contemplate them having full rights, etc. You begin to think of these groups of people. But I want you to think a little more deeply. I want you to get past the media cliches on this. There may be truth in that. They're actually way more marginalized and disempowered people than you think. And it isn't necessarily a case of how much income you have or where you came from to get here. The idea of oppression and dealing unjustly with people it has an awful lot to do. This is the one thing that the postmodern idea gets right, is God does not like people in power using it capriciously to oppress people who do not have power. Now, in the postmodern world, we want to put people into classes. God wants to put it on an individual basis because basically in any given instance, you can see people with power treating people without it unjustly. And God says, I don't care where you came from, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care anything about you. That's unjust no matter where you see it, no matter who is doing it, whether it's the majority doing it to the minority or the minority doing it to the majority or you or I doing it to our neighbor. And so you, you really need to get an idea of the pervasiveness. This is a revolutionary idea. It undercuts all the secular thinking about this idea of justice. Well, let me use the time that we have left to move forward a little bit because I want to go to the New Testament and make a connection, but here's one thing we have to remember. When you go to the New Testament, you get much more a life like ours. We don't live, in the church we do, we live as a community of people in a covenant relationship with God, and we know what is a just way to treat one another in the church. This is the family of God's believers. These are God's chosen people. But we live in the midst of a society that does not share this, these ideas. Well, when you go to the New Testament, you see the same thing. You see Christians living in a world where the systems of justice are not biblical. They do not 
reflect, or at least they don't always reflect, the character of God. So let me fast forward and listen to what Jesus says. This is really interesting. He, put it in this context. First of all, put it in an eschatological context. But I'm going to set that aside for a minute. He's saying something really profound here about the Christian faith. But he's also saying something very practical. He's drawing on a common experience everybody knows. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary before the magistrate, now we're talking about the Greek and Roman, particularly the Roman judicial system, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way. Now it's interesting. You notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, just be sure that you're in the right and justice will win. Justice didn't win in Roman courts. Justice doesn't win in 21st century courts all the time. This is a great example of what, do you, what does justice look like? What is your behavior in an unjust system? And the Roman system was very unjust, weighted very much toward the rich. Because, and this is going to sound eerily familiar to you. Uh, but it's, however bad you may think America's justice system is, I happen to think it's, it's good compared to the options. Definitely good compared to this. Rampant injustice. Bribes to judges. Routine. Uh, if you had enough money, you were going to win the case in court. If you could hire a really skilled lawyer, Seneca, uh, Cicero, some of the great orators made a lot of their money by going and arguing case. They didn't care if you were guilty or not. They could convince the mob here. They could convince the judge that you should get off. And that's all. It had nothing to do with what the facts were. It had everything to do with who had the money and who had the influence. And so Jesus is saying, he said, try hard to be reconciled or he may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid everything that you owe. Now, is he saying that's right? Of course he's not saying that's right. He's saying this is the way this corrupt, fallen world works. And so he's saying judge for yourself. How should you interact with this world? This is not how we treat one another, but this is how we treat people in the world. You recognize the idea that there is injustice. So be peacemakers. You are going to have unjust things happen to you. Keep going. This is in James chapter 2, and he's reinforcing this idea. He says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's talking about the church. He's talking about God's select people, the church, the ones he's called from the world. Don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, you can sit in a good seat, but you say to the poor man, go sit on the floor over there, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What's he saying? Have you not become just like the culture out there? He said, listen, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom? In other words, he's coming right back to Deuteronomy. God does not show favoritism. God doesn't care how much money you have. God upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow and the poor and the disenfranchised and the one who can't get as good a lawyer. In other words, God wants justice. He said, when you begin to act this way, you act unjustly. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they the ones dragging you into court? That's what I wanted to point out. Why does he say that? Because everybody knew, yeah, that's the way this system works in ancient Rome. And again, 
far worse than you can possibly imagine. And that is, if you are unlucky enough to have somebody who has more money want to sue you, you're, you've lost. In other words, you're being exploited. That was that system, and you see Christians living in that system. And I think there are really important ideas for us. There are two key ideas. Number one, justice doesn't change. That is unjust. And secondly, we will experience injustice. Remember when Jesus said, uh, you know, in this world you will have trouble? He meant that in a lot of ways. And this is one of them. And then finally, the Apostle Paul is writing to Corinth. Corinth is an absolutely secular city. And he's talking to believers who've come out of this, and now they've come out of this secular world. Now they're following Christ. But here's the problem. When one of them has a business dispute, they go right back to the secular courts and the guy with more money wins over the guy that has less money and he just takes advantage of him. And Paul's like, oh my goodness, you, do you not understand anything about the character of God? Listen, how harshly he speaks to them. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare you take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Now, a lot of people read this and say, Christians should never go to court against each other. Table that for a minute. I don't have time to talk about that. The point I want to make is indisputable. Whatever your opinion about that is, you can't argue with this. And that is, this was an unjust system, and if you had more money, you could win. You were exploiting it. It had nothing to do with justice. It had to do with you getting your way. And Paul's saying, if you bring that into the church, remember how vicious God was about bringing murder, about bringing some of these other unjust ways in? Paul is absolutely that intense about this. He said, if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? He says, if you have disputes about such matters, why couldn't you take the least Christian, the least? And what he means by this is people that have no account in the church. What do they account? They are following God. They want to partake of his character. They want to do what is just. The least educated person in the church understands justice better than the most educated person in the society. And what he means by that is, if you indeed have surrendered your life to Christ and you are becoming like Christ, you are becoming just. The person in the world is just a really well-educated sinner. You, know, you can learn all you want to, and you can become a very, as C.S. Lewis said, very well-educated sinners. What Paul is saying is, you'll never get justice until you have the heart of Christ. He says, so he said, instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. He said, in fact, the fact that you have lawsuits means you've already been defeated. Why not rather be wronged? In other words, if you really trust in God, if you really know there's an eternity, he said, this is wrong on so many levels. He said, if you truly have a brother here, surely the two of you both of you following Christ can settle this. Now, I want to make one distinction. In our world, we'd say, well, two Christians can always come to agreement. Of course not. Seventy-some percent of Americans say that they're Christian. Are seventy-some percent of America Christians? No. He's talking about people that are actually following Christ. The point I want to make is, is that that is the key to justice. So to the extent that we say we really are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, as Romans chapter 8 says, that is the extent to which we really understand justice. And so I would say, hold up a mirror and say, are my actions godly? Are they just as God understands justice? If so, 
that's probably a good sign that I am being conformed to the image of Christ. If I look at my life and I'm convicted by injustice in God's eyes, where I am oppressing people, where I am taking advantage of people, where I am dealing with people in non-Christian ways, then that should be a reflection to me. It's not a matter of, oh, you did a wrong, you did a sin, go confess it. That's true, but the implication is I don't have the heart of God. I need to cut that off and continue to have the heart of God. Biblical justice is all about the character of God. It's all about the character of Jesus Christ. That's the essence of biblical justice. I'm going to argue also, and I'll leave you with this one final thought, because you're going to say to me, and you should, okay, Terry, we live in an unjust world, and injustices have happened and continue to happen. We will pursue godly justice, but we're not going to receive it in all cases, and we're not going to see it happening. How do we resolve the evil in the world? Why do unjust things happen to people in this world? And here's what I'm going to say to you. Remember those four ideas of justice that we talked about that, that basically characterize what the secular world thinks? Not one of those ideas of justice can answer that question. Not one. In other words, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do unjust things happen to people in this world? Not one of them can give you an answer for that. If there is no judgment... If there is no end, if God's story is not true, if we are not going to all stand in front of judgment, then there is no justice. But if indeed God is who he says he is, and he says I am the just judge, and everyone will stand before me and be judged, if there is no hell, there is no answer to this problem, Life is terrible and then you die. And that's pretty much the only advice the world's got for you. But if indeed Jesus Christ said, I will come for you, I am the just judge, I will set things right in the world, then you have an answer, and that is in God's time, justice will be done. And that is true, and that's why the biblical idea of justice is so superior to anything that we have made up on our own. Well, I appreciate you being with me on this. I know we've barely scratched the surface of this, but some of these ideas are key foundational ideas, and I hope that they help navigate some of the uncertainties in our world and at least help us to identify why are all these people yelling at each other and never having a reasonable conversation. First of all, they don't even agree on the idea of justice, and secondly, none of those ideas of justice can really do what is right. Well, we begin a new series next. Uh, I know that we're about to go through an election campaign that's going to be probably ugly in unprecedented ways. I understand that uh, I'm going to have to talk 50% of the people off the ledge after this election. I don't know which 50%, but we're basically going to have to talk about it. And I thought, let's talk about leadership. Let's talk about a godly man who is at the same time very flawed. And I think this is a good study for us. I've called it a man for all times. It's the life of David, King David. King David is every man, every woman. Every one of us can identify with the flaws and we aspire to the relationship with God. 
And that's the essence of navigating our relationship with God in the midst of a sinful, fallen world. And I'm afraid we're going to experience a little more of it in the next few months. Hope you can join us as we talk about the life of David. Thanks.